In a place that appears larger than life, it's hard to imagine New York City could ever be shrunken down. But perhaps you haven't yet paid a visit to Gulliver's Gate. The exhibition brings the entire planet, including the Big Apple, to West 44th Street in miniature form. Hi, I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape. Coming up, Honey, They Shrunk the World. We'll talk with Jason Hackett, the chief marketing officer of Gulliver's Gate. Imagine a full city block, but instead of filled with average-sized people, average-sized things, it's filled with buildings, cars, trains, planes, boats. And your average human in Gulliver's Gate wants you to hold up your hand and look at your pinky finger and look at the first two knuckles. That's about the height of an average person at Gulliver's Gate. But first, we'll meet a man who spends his life in a land of miniatures. Darren Thomas Scala is the owner of D. Thomas Fine Miniatures. He has deep appreciation for and knowledge of miniature arts. I caught up with him at a studio space in Yonkers. My name is Darren Scala, and I am the owner of D. Thomas Fine Miniatures. Now, what do you mean by miniatures? Okay, so miniatures miniatures is, is anything that is a small representation of something that is larger. So for you, what does that mean specifically? Because I know you work in a very specific way when it comes to miniatures. Well, I, for me, it's about, uh, it's about tiny objects that reflect a larger meaning. So it begins, it can begin with the dollhouse, actually, um, but, and, and, and it could be perceived as a toy or a plaything, but my objective really is to show people that miniatures can be everything from the cute and playful all the way up to what I would call fine art. But what about scale? You work with one-twelfth, right? That, that is correct. So scale, there are many different scales in the miniatures world. Um, the most traditional scale would be one-twelfth. So one inch equals one foot. So if it's a five-foot table in real life, in a miniature form, it will be five inches wide, let's say. Um, but there are so many different scales that people sort of, quote-unquote, play in today, everywhere from you know half-inch scale to one-forty-fourth-inch scale to micro-miniatures, which is like one-eighty-seventh scale, which think model railroad um, size, um, all the way up further to one six, which would be a traditional Barbie scale. But the most traditional scale is one twelfth that uh, uh, folks in the miniatures world um, play in, quote unquote, play. Yeah, I, I know. You word. use that word play, but use you that use that loosely, right? I use that loosely only because when people think of miniatures, they think dollhouse. And I actually ask folks to rethink dollhouse um, because they can be playthings, but they also can be serious forms of, of art. Give me some examples of serious forms of art. So um, we just had an exhibition of, of miniature works by, um, there, were 12, there were 12 artists um, engaged from all over the world that created 15 works of art under the uh, umbrella of We Resist, which is um, W-E-E, Resist. Um, basically, a sh- a sh- an exhibition centered around um, artists creating miniatures that would reflect an expression of what they might be going through in a time, let's say, of unrest, which a lot of folks out there might actually be feeling right now. So We Resist was um, an expression of art from artists from all over the world um, that created pieces to reflect that. And one, in fact, um, would be uh, a piece that was created by a wonderful team of miniatures out of Brooklyn, uh, Nix and Gerber. They created a um, a 112 scale uh, piece uh, representing um, uh, the heritage that they come from, which is the Midwest, and how they ref- how they reflect, you know, what they're going through. So yeah. 
Now, speaking of out of Brooklyn, you're from out of Brooklyn yeah, originally. Exactly. I'm originally from Brooklyn. Um, I spent, uh, you know, I grew up in Brooklyn. I went to school in Boston. I, um, you know, spent many years in the city, and now I live up here in Yonkers. Um, and this is also where my studio is and the gallery where I showcase um, miniatures. You come from the corporate world. In the, in the marketing realm, in product development, marketing, brand development, brand management. Um, and, you know, I had a great time and a great experience, and I really wanted to bring that experience to my passion, which is miniatures. So, you know, for a long time, the miniatures world has, has you know, not had its day. And I really feel like um, it needs to, to be exposed to a wider audience because I think at the end of the day, everyone loves miniatures in some format, um, in some way. It's really how they, how they interact with them. So my basic premise is everyone loves miniatures, and my goal is to show, that, show folks miniatures and then give them an, uh, ideas to how they can interact. So, you know, there's three basic premises, that, three different places you can go once you've been exposed to miniatures and you've been charmed by them. You could become a hobbyist and you can make miniatures. You could become an enthusiast. Just go out and see miniatures. There's tons of, of, of uh artists who are working in the miniature realm that, that you can see in museums and showcases and libraries across the country and across the world. Um, and finally, so it's the hobbyist, the enthusiast, and the collector. And finally, it's the collector. Those are people who just want to acquire these fine, tiny objects and have them because they just love them. Are you all three? I, I am. <laughs> I actually am. Um, you know, yes, I, I do all three. And, and uh, you know, and I work really, uh, my goal, again, is really to use those three drivers um, to to showcase uh, miniatures. So I have gallery exhibitions to showcase works of art in miniature. I have classes in my studio to have folks come in and learn how to make miniatures. Um, and so uh, and so showcase and also sell. Of course, I have a retail business online um, and also in store. Uh, right here in the studio, I have uh, uh, visits by appointment to see to see the work and to purchase the work. Um, and I'm getting ready to launch an outpost up in Cold Spring, New York, um, at the Shops, which is this idyllic little store within a store concept up in Cold Spring. So I invite folks to come uh, beginning mid-October. We'll be up there selling uh, fine miniatures. What's it like to create something so tiny? What's involved in the process? Yeah, well, every, you know, like just like any artist, uh, everyone has a different process. Um, I think really it starts with a love of of the the category and a love of of the tiny uh i think you know most of the artists that i talk to there's just something that compels them to work in that scale in that size so i think it begins there and then again with any artist um it's really what you love to do and what you want to create and what you want to make um and that's the part that sort of brings those two pieces together uh you know at least for the makers I would imagine you have to have a lot of patience when you're working with something so tiny, trying to build something so tiny. Yeah, you need lots of patience. Uh, you need a lot of skill. Uh, you need tons of creativity. And, um, yeah, but, but uh, you know, it, at the end of the day, it's just really rewarding for the people who are working in, the, in, this, uh, in the genre. What are among some of your favorite things that you've created? That I've created? I, I, I'm more of a student, of the miniature arts. I'm learning every single day. I'm, I'm actually a former board member of the Guild of, of Miniature Artisans, and they have classes up once a year up in Maine um, in this idyllic coastal town, Castine, and hundreds, a couple of hundred folks come from all over the world to learn. So I learn. I go there to learn. Um, but, but, I, you know, but my favorite thing to, to 
my favorite thing in the miniature world is is really furniture. That's my thing. So I love a one twelve scale furniture object that was recreated, let's say, from you know from uh, you know an architectural period, and it's amazingly created in perfect detail. The drawers would work. They would be dovetailing. It would be using the correct right correct kind of wood and the right grains to reflect the scale so that's my my that's my thing that's my thing but what i love to do is really encourage artists to uh, broaden themselves and create works that would be identified more as contemporary art what are we looking at right here so we just had two sh- – actually, we had two shows that just ended, the We Resist uh, exhibition, um, but also this wonderful artist. Her name is Jill Orlov. She's out of the Baltimore area. She works in metal. So everything she creates is one twelve scale metal work that she welds. So we did a show called Those Were the Days, and uh, basically – uh, recreating television st- iconic television studios from the 70s in miniature. So we're, Don't tell me this is the Brady Bunch house. Yes, we have the living room set from the Brady Bunch in 112 scale, all made of metal. So the iconic staircase uh, that the Brady's you know, came down on is reflected in this piece. It's and a- the vase that Peter broke. Mom always said, don't play ball in the house. And the vase that Peter broke. Absolutely. So all of those, those details have been captured here. Um, in this piece, uh, and and it's it's um, it was a fun show to do. We had we had an uh, an all in the family piece, and we have actually another piece, which is really the, uh, the 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 marquee piece, which is Julia Child's kitchen in one twelve scale, all metal. Um, it's a reflection of her studio of her of the studio, which is also also her home kitchen, which is in Cambridge, Massachusetts, when they filmed the show. And you really need to go see, look online at dthomasfineministers.com uh, for, for uh, images of these pieces. They're really, truly wonderful to look at in, 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 you know, when you see them. But, yeah. The pots, the pans, the cookbooks, all there. They're, they're all there in, in wonderful, fine-scale miniature. You know, and, and that's the thing about miniatures. It's, it's, it's one thing to recreate uh, every object in, fine, in perfect miniature, but... These pieces, and this is what, what really makes an, uh, a miniature, let's say, a, a work of art, is really, you know, it's, it's those little nuances, those little changes that you might make that make people think, you know, this could have easily been done in, in wood and, and common materials that would have reflected exactly what her studio, Julia Child's studio, or, or would have looked like. But this is all made of metal, and it kind of makes you think, how did she do that? And, you know, why did she make some of the decisions that she made? So there's a copper, it's actually a copper tablecloth, metal copper tablecloth. So it's just those little decisions that you wonder and you, and you reflect upon when you see these pieces that I think make, make the difference between dollhouse and art. What about adding characters to these scenes? For instance, there are no Brady's in this set here. There's no Julia Child over there. The decision whether or not to include characters, let's say, or dolls, if you will, in some of these scenes is, is, a, is a question that miniaturists uh, you know, all ask themselves. There are, there are some miniaturists that say, never will I include you know, a doll or a representation of a person. And the reason is it takes away from the realism. You know, a lot of miniaturists strive to create some sort of realism. And obviously you cannot recreate a person in miniature. And so it takes away from the perfection that some miniaturists strive for. 
But then there are total, there are people who are the hobbyists that say, who cares? I'm putting a doll in my, in my scene, quote unquote, whatever. So, you know, it's, it's definitely a, a topic of conversation in the miniatures world. I personally don't include and, and don't choose to have um, representations of people in any of the scenes, only because that's my feeling is it does take away from the realism. What would you say inspired your interest in miniatures? Oh, gosh. So I've always been interested in miniatures from from time I was a very small child. You know, I was very lucky that I had parents who were very supportive. My dad, you know, cabinet maker from Brooklyn, New York, you know, I asked for a dollhouse and he built me a dollhouse. So, you know, I, I was incredibly supported. You know, 1970s, you don't build a dollhouse for your kid. But my dad did. So I was supported. I had this interest. I had this passion. And, and I think, you know, that sort of helped move it along to where I am today in terms of, you know, having that, that passion and that interest come to life with G. Thomas Fine Miniatures. Can we walk over to this bar? Yes. Because this bar is pretty fantastic. So when I, when I first opened up the studio and the shop, I actually came over from Hastings on Hudson. So this is my second location, my new location. Um, so I engaged an artist from Argentina. His name is Hernan Bolshevik. He's actually Croatian, lives in Argentina, but loves all things Spain. And so he, he flies back and forth to Spain um, working with clients to recreate architectural landmark restaurants and tapas bars from the 1700s and the 1800s. So, again, this piece you can see on my site or on my Instagram account. Um, this is a uh, what we're looking at is a representation of a fictitious Spanish tapas bar from let's say the 1700s, all recreated in in sca- fine scale miniature. There are over 400 individually made liquor bottles that are on the shelves of this piece. Um, it took him over 900 hours to make this piece. And and what's so amazing about uh, Hernan is that his range of abilities in working in miniature. Are, are astounding. Uh, most miniatures will work in one genre. They'll be able to work in metal or wood or uh, fine art, painting. He can do everything from the structure to you know the individual pieces. His food miniatures are incredible. You can actually see he's got hanging meats, hanging fr- dried meats, sausages and, and um, dried meats hanging on the side of this piece. And you can see every vein and every texture element from from the meats hanging on the side. So he's amazing. He's, you know, his range is broad and he's incredibly talented. So he made this piece specifically for um, the Hastings location in an effort to really, um, to get his work known here in the U.S. When you look at these miniature worlds, like a miniature bar like this, you really feel like you could just pull right into it. You could take a seat on that stool. Yeah, you can. And, and I think that's part of it is, is part of that creating these pieces is having folks think about what they can do and what they cannot do. So for some, yeah, you want to pull up a chair and you want to you want to sit and have some tapas and have a drink. Some people are just want to look at the fabulous mural on, you know, on decoupage ceiling, which has, you know, uh, you know, 11, I don't know what that is from. It looks like it's from the Vatican. It's a beautiful mural painted on the ceiling. So it affects people different ways. And that's the purpose. It's, it's, it's allowing people to sort of you know, drive right into that piece and either see themselves in that world or, or, or wonder what's going on in that world. And those are the, that's the difference between dollhouse and contemporary art. It's, it makes you, it asks the question, what? I know you said you're still a student, but is there anything in particular that you really want to create yourself that's on your wish list? I have a file of, that is filled with things, it's, it's called Things I Want to Make. I'll never, ever, ever get to all of it in my lifetime. Um, 
some of the things that are on my, my wish list, I want to make an art gallery because I do love fine art paintings in miniature. And so the best way to collect as many as possible is to create an art gallery in miniature, basically a room box, and you just fill it. Otherwise, really, where do you put all these little tiny paintings is my feeling. Darren, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. <laughs> Darren Thomas Scala is the owner of D. Thomas Fine Miniatures. More info at dthomasfineminiatures.com. This is Cityscape. I'm George Bodarki. New York City is now home to one of the smallest worlds ever created. It's called Gulliver's Gate. The $40 million exhibit in Times Square is made up of miniature models that represent places all around the globe. With me now in the studio is Jason Hackett. He's the chief marketing officer of Gulliver's Gate. Jason, thanks so much for coming in. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So describe this miniature world attraction. So Gulliver's Gate, imagine a full city block, but instead of filled with average size people, average size things, it's filled with buildings, cars, trains, planes, boats. And your average human in Gulliver's Gate wants you to hold up your hand and look at your pinky finger and look at the first two knuckles. That's about the height of an average person at Gulliver's Gate. So honey, I shrunk eight, the world. Honey, I shrunk the world. One <laughs> to 87, or as trainers like to call it, HO scale. And that takes place over an entire city block. And we call it a greatest hits of human endeavor. We're showing you the great monuments and moments throughout human history. And we, we talk about history because Gulliver's Gate doesn't really exist in time. We have a Lenape village right next to our Manhattan Bridge. And then you walk on a little further and you see the Colossus of Rhodes. So 2,000 years ago, 200 years ago, today, we're all trying to bring it all together and really show our relationship to each other in the built environment. So what do you cover geographically? So geographically, we do take liberties, um, but the experience starts with a miniature version of New York. And the 9-11 Memorial beautifully lit up, the Oculus, some of the great things that we have going on downtown. And then we go on to show you some of our greatest hits of the city. So you'll see the New York Public Library, the Guggenheim Museum, Grand Central Terminal, all these things rendered in amazing detail, along with the High Line and the Standard Hotel and that great pyramid building on the, uh, the West Side Highway by the river. Then we take you through the northern part of our continent. So we show you Niagara Falls and a wonderful kind of collage of New England, all rendered out in 3D. And then it's off to Europe, Great Britain, Russia, and Asia, Latin America, and the Mideast. And finally, the whole experience ends with our real live working model airport where you can see planes take off and land right in front of you. Really? Take off and land? Take off and land. It's a little bit of sleight of hand. We don't, we don't actually achieve flight, but if you squint and you believe, they take off and land. That said, do you have moving parts, trains, automobiles? It's amazing, actually. It's, um, we've got cars, trucks, trains, planes, and boats. The cars and trucks move as if they're on their own, um, and they're guided by a GPS in the ceiling. So they've each got their own little motor inside of them and uh, conductive recharging. So just by moving along the roadbed, they're getting recharged like you would with your Apple Watch or something like that. Trucks and, and cars doing that. Then we've got a functioning model of the Panama Canal. So boats actually moving through a body of water going up and down in the locks. Um, it's, it's amazing. I mean, the locks don't go quite as slow as the Panama locks, but it's fun to see them raise up and down. And then the planes too. The planes are effectively cars. You know, they've got their own little engine and they're moving forward. But then we've got this great stick mechanism that we've built. It's a huge conveyor belt that you can't see. The stick actually sneaks up underneath the plane. And between how we've got it lit and the, and the fact the stick is made of plexiglass, you don't see it. And it looks like it's taking off and flying. It's really cool. How long did it take to build this attraction? So from cocktail napkin idea to opening day was about four years. 
Um, but once the sketches got off the cocktail napkin and people started doing doing business planning and design, it was about a two-year process all in. Um, six months on the design piece of it, then another 12 months of building off-site, uh, building the models off-site, and I'll talk about that in a second. And then um, construction and installation on-site in Times Square on 44th Street started just in January of 2016. Um, you know, demolition had been done in the space that we were in before that. But then starting January 16, build-out happened and they opened on May 9th. How painstaking is it to build something so miniature? It's incredible. And and the artisans and designers who did it take huge pride in the level of detail that they've gotten. I think the the best example is our Grand Central Terminal. And the ceiling in our Grand Central Terminal is reproduced faithfully to the ceiling at Grand Central, um, the real Grand Central. And it, and these guys consider, and women consider it a huge mark of accomplishment if they can really faithfully reproduce exactly what's there. So the measurements, how they build it, the cornice work on these buildings, everything is really a faithful reproduction of what you see in the in the big world. Who are the designers and builders of this attraction? So we worked with design shops around the world. The, the overall conceit came from a gentleman named Michael Langer and his partner, Aran Gazit. Um, Iran had worked on building a miniature version of Israel about 15 years prior. But then they engaged model makers and designers around the world with the idea being twofold. The first was they could never open on their schedule with a single shop doing all of the work. But the more important part was everything in the model has a sense of humor. Everything in the model has a point of view. And they realized that if they went to a single culture to build many other cultures, that they'd never get it right. And so the idea was... The European model was built in Italy by Europeans. The Asian model was built in China by Chinese and, and so on and so forth as you go throughout because that sense of humor, that sense of verisimilitude is only going to come from someone who's indigenous to that area. So it was about eight model shops in six different countries around the world who did it. So where is that sense of humor reflected in Gulliver's Gate? So I mentioned we have we have little tiny people throughout, right? So there are scenes that happen throughout. So in, in some places you may have, you know, the um, a, a mother pushing a baby and the baby's actually got a giant lollipop and looking back at you with a funny sense of humor. Or you've got clowns in places you'd never expect them. Or topless sunbathers. All, all sorts of little... Humorous, lighthearted, nice gotcha moments, unintended moments of sort of beautifully eloquent humor. You mentioned some of them, but what are some of the other famous landmarks in this exhibit? So we've got um, the Colossus of Rhodes, which you know no human being has seen in 2,000 years. We've got the Colosseum, uh, Buckingham Palace, uh, London Bridge, Eiffel Tower, St. Basil's Cathedral over in, in Russia. Then when we move into Latin America... We've got Iguazu Falls and the Panama Canal. Um, we've got Copacabana Beach. And then in Asia, we have the Forbidden City and, and the Taj Mahal and Angkor Wat. Uh, we do all of the holy sites in, in the Middle East and, of course, the Great Pyramids um, in Egypt and Africa. So those are just some of the, the, the pieces that you see inside of Gulliver's Gate. Is it interactive in any way? In, it's, it is interactive in many ways. The type of interactivity that you're talking about, we realize by giving each of our guests an RFID-enabled key when they come in to Gulliver's Gate, really taking that idea of gate seriously. And you can put that key into different electronic boxes throughout the exhibit. And by turning that key, something comes alive inside of the exhibit. The, the best example is we've got a miniature Pier 40 right at the beginning of the exhibit with the trapeze school right on top. 
you put the key in the box in front of that and you turn it and the trapeze artists begin to swing back and forth on the trapeze. It's, 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 a, it's a lovely little moment. But the other piece of interactivity is what we find our guests doing with each other. They're really starting, you see guests come through and they're standing with each other and either within the context of their own party, they're pointing, we've been there or let's go there or your grandparents came from there, which is something that we hear a lot. And then the the beautiful thing is we see the guests talking to strangers. Isn't that amazing? Have you been there? And they begin to get in conversations with each other about these ma- magical places around the world. And certainly wasn't an intentional consequence, but it's really magnificent to see. So how is it set up? When people come to Gulliver's Gate, can they start anywhere? Do you start them off at a particular point? It, no, it's it's a linear experience. We really do set you on a path. So, And Gulliver's Gate, we hope to be one of many. But so when you start... At the New York Gulliver's Gate, you start with our diorama of New York City. And then we wind you through Europe, Russia, and we take you into what we call our Great Hall. And, you know, I said geography, who we take liberties with. In our Great Hall, we have Latin America right across from Asia, and that's right across the, the aisleway from the Mideast and, and the Holy Lands. So it really is um, all put together there. You can take your time. Uh, guests are taking about 90 minutes to two hours to wander through the museum all told, but it is a relatively linear path that we ask you to go on. Was it strategic to put this attraction in Times Square in New York City? 100%. Once, once the partners decided that they wanted to build this in New York City and share this with the world, there really was only one place for them to put it, which was in the heart of Times Square. Uh, I think one of the big messages uh, from the outset with Gulliver's Gate was this idea of inclusion and the idea that you belong. And Times Square being the crossroads of the world, being a place where we welcome so many international visitors, where so many New Yorkers pass through and go by every day, that idea of inclusion was really well supported by being in the heart of Times Square. And it's also something that we want visitors to New York City to enjoy. So let's make it easy for them. Let's put it in the heart of the tourist district. What about the name Gulliver's Gate? Gulliver's Gate um, was... One of those aha moments in the, in the development of it, you know, Gulliver referencing back to the Swift novel and, and, and Swift's journeys. And the gate, this idea that you would cross over, that you would go into this new magical place um, that was on the other side of a portal. And and the, the Gulliver reference isn't just to Lilliput. It isn't just to scale, but really the, the commentary that Swift was making on the English monarchy at the time and this whole idea of humor and parody being built in to the entire place and, and not taking yourself so seriously. Was part of the mission to create a utopian environment or are there traffic jams in Gulliver's Gate? I, I think utopian, perhaps not um, idealized in a lot of ways, but also about storytelling. So are there traffic jams? You bet. Are there are there a couple of bits of accident and mayhem going on? Absolutely. But not in ways that are off-putting, in ways that connotate where you're going to be in the world. I understand that visitors to Gulliver's Gate are able to make miniature models of themselves. This is one of the coolest things ever, and people's eyes pop out of their head. So we call it getting Gulliverized, and we've got this walk-in 3D scanner, which is about the same size as that thing you go through at the airport. And it's got 128 digital SLR cameras in it. It takes a picture of you from 128 different angles. And then you can actually be printed in 3D. And it's like a 3D photo, and you can get it in, we call them small, medium, and large, but, you know, an average human winds up being about 5 inches tall on small, and then it's almost over 12 inches high when you get to the large one, and it looks just like you. I mean, I encourage people to wear prints when they do it. We had one one kid come through, had had the pictures taken, 
and he was wearing camouflage pants and the camouflage came through on the print. And so you can get those prints printed out for, for a fee and have them sent to your home. And then also we can print you out at 1 to 87 scale, about the same size as your two pinky knuckles, and then put into the model, which is really, really special. People And cool. people have been loving it. How long have you been open now? Since May. We've been open just just about five months at the end of this month. And it's been really warmly received in the, in, in the fir- in its first five months. How many people have come through your doors? Uh, tens of thousands. Uh, I don't have the number off the top of my head, but we're we're seeing on average about seven hundred and fifty to a thousand people a day. Do you have a benchmark hoping to get this many people over the next year? We expect. You know, we we sort of built our models off of a lot of comparable attractions in New York and off off of something called Miniature Wonderland in Germany, and those places are all doing around a million a year, and we are ramping up on plan. To, to be there. So how do you keep on adding to this world as time goes by? It's interesting. Uh, New York City real estate is, of course, uh, not a cheap thing. But we can also add in about 400 square miles just by buying a 4 by 8 sheet of plywood. So we're, <laughs> we're sort of privileged that way. And we're doing a few things to do that. One, you, we continue to add scenes to the world all the time. Uh, the other is we're continuing to make little replicas and models of different areas that catch our fancy. So... In the summer and sort of in, in, in the height of summer, we made a fantastic Coney Island model, sort of doing the greatest hits of Coney Island there, and begin to set those up as individual uh, dioramas throughout the space. We've also left room for a gallery space where we invite in visiting artists and we'll be able to expand into there. So it's, you know, like all New Yorkers, we constantly are trying to figure out how do we take care, take advantage of additional space? How do we reconfigure and, and uh, fold more into less? Jason, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me. That was Jason Hackett. He's the chief marketing officer of Gulliver's Gate. You can check them out online at gulliversgate.com. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Bodarki. My thanks to producer Caroline Rotante, and thank you for listening. WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.